This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The hijinks of former high-level federal office holders aside, there is a problem with overclassification in the federal government and the incentives built into the federal system of classifying information promises to make the problem worse without action. Cato's Patrick Eddington details a path forward for getting a handle on what government is hiding and why it matters that they aren't hiding too much. Classified documents have been in the news a lot lately. I don't know if you're following this, Pat. (laughs) But uh, lots of high-level government officials, the highest-level government officials in the United States have mishandled classified documents and have been, uh, I don't know if an actual finger was wagged at them for for engaging in this uh, activity, but it certainly seems out of uh, proportion to the way Uh, Reality Winner uh, and others have treated classified documents. Um, And so the question is, has been raised by you and others that there is a problem uh, that is related to this, which is overclassification and the degree to which governments are able to uh, have us fly blind in our attempts to hold our own government accountable uh, in terms of accessing information about our own government. So if if you can, if you can delineate classification has a purpose, in some cases it has a very legitimate purpose, a critical purpose to our uh, national security, our safety, our defense mechanisms that we have for the United States. But there are others that don't make any sense and make that other system uh, less salient, I think, to a lot of people. Is that about right? I, I think that's exactly right. And I would go even further and say that when you look at whistleblowers like Army Captain Christopher Pyle, who in 1971 revealed this massive Army domestic surveillance program that he was absolutely certain was unconstitutional, of course it was. Then you look at somebody like uh, Department of Justice uh, Attorney uh, uh, Thomas Tam. He's the guy that ultimately was one of the sources for the New York Times story on George W. Bush's illegal stellar wind mass surveillance uh, program. And then, of course, uh, Edward Snowden. You know, this coming June, it'll be 10 years since Snowden's uh, first revelation was published in the Guardian newspaper. And that, of course, was the programmatic surveillance um, of America's telephone uh, metadata, you know, with Verizon. I mean, literally, pretty much every human being. I mean, it was just massive, absolutely insane, completely disconnected from any kind of Fourth Amendment probable cause, you know, particularized kind of uh, standard. And and so when, when we see these massive instances of the government engaging in this kind of conduct, and when we see them use the classification system to conceal that stuff, it should not be a surprise that people with a conscience and a brain are going to take matters into their own hands because you know, up to this point in time, folks in Congress have not taken back their own constitutional power here. And that, that's something that, you know, a lot of people, I think, really don't uh, don't understand or are just not aware of. And when I testified before the House, or I should say the Senate uh, Homeland Security Co- Committee here recently, I had to remind the members that, you know, the word secret only appears once in our Constitution. And it's not an Article 2 dealing with the, with the executive. It is in Article 1, Section 5 which deals with Congress and its proceedings. And 
that means that Congress was actually the original classification authority here in America. And if you look at Article 2 of the Constitution, there's not a single word in the actual text of the document that authorizes the president or any of his designees to classify a single piece of paper. Almost all that authority has come from, in my judgment, extremely dubious, if not outright wrong, court decisions over the course of the last century, especially. And so now, because all of these secrets or alleged secrets have been allowed to accumulate into the tens of millions of pages of documents, many of which are 30 years old, 60 years old, 80 years old, our, our folks at the National Archives and other facilities that deal with these kinds of records in a, in a historical context, they're drowning. They're literally drowning in this stuff. And so, you know, my hope is we'll actually finally see Congress kind of reassert some authority here and pass some mandatory declassification uh, legislation. At the same time, the other thing they've got to do is make it a federal felony for a government official to knowingly classify a document to hide waste, fraud, abuse, criminal conduct, mismanagement, the whole nine yards. There, Because there is no statute that does that right now. I mean, and so the incentive structure for bureaucrats inside the system is very perverse. It's like, you're never going to get your hand slapped, much less lose your job, for overclassifying something. But boy, you know, if you let anything, even confidential level, go through that career ending, career ending, you know. So that's where we are, unfortunately. So uh, it's so funny that there were classified documents uh, to hide massive uh, surveillance programs of Americans. And yet classification itself is sort of an end run around the surveillance that Americans ought to be able to do of their own government. That's exactly right. And when you have an instrument like the Freedom of Information Act that they flagrantly and consistently um, violate, you know, and, and I'll, I'll give you what I think is like a priceless example. And, and I'm hopeful that this is going to be one of our next Freedom of Information Act lawsuits here at Cato. The Department of Justice's Office of Information Policy is literally responsible for setting the executive branch policy for enforcing FOIA and seeing to it that records are actually made available to the public, right? So one of the things that we've been seeking is their actual standard operating procedures for doing that. We know on the basis of information we've gleaned from some other sources that this document is 12 pages long. We asked for it. They gave us a 63-page document that had nothing to do with precisely what we asked for, which is how, on a day-to-day -day basis, the FOIA officers at the Department of Justice and the FBI and the DEA and everywhere else are supposed to do their jobs. So now we're in, a, in this bizarre position where the very, very component of our government that is responsible for ensuring that the law is upheld is itself violating the law in this circumstance and denying us the ability to understand how they make these very decisions. So it's it's about as Kafkaesque as it gets. So in, in terms of trying to find a, a clean rule that might empower uh, the government or order uh, the government to declassify vast reams of information about items that are decades old, what, you know, what, what might that look like? I included in my written testimony to the uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee, essentially model legislation to accomplish just that. And it's based off of essentially some prior examples where this kind of thing has been done on a selective basis on a specific set of topics. So uh, the JFK assassination records, 
all of that stuff, to the extent that it has been made public to this date, came about because Congress told the executive branch via statute, do it, right? The same thing with Nazi war crimes records, Imperial Japanese government war crimes records, and so on and so forth. So the only time the executive branch will really do this in, in bulk, even though the existing executive order on classification says they're supposed to do it every 25 years, any, any kind of document comes up that's 25 years old or older, it's supposed to be automatically reviewed. We know it's not happening. The only way it does happen is when Congress enacts a statute and says, get it done, do it. And that's exactly what it's going to take here. Because uh, otherwise, we are literally going to have a permanent secret history of America because you'll never be able to get access to it. I mean, the existing number of personnel are, are just not remotely capable of keeping up with 50 million new documents being classified every year. That's why the entire classification system has to be totally reexamined in terms of what you actually truly need to keep secret versus what really doesn't actually qualify as a true secret. And it's interesting because if, if, it's, if it's that volume currently and these documents are supposed to be rev uh, reviewed on a, on a regular, if infrequent, basis uh, in 25 years, you have, you have a manpower problem in terms of actually just reviewing those documents. Yeah. And despite all of this chatter about chat GPT and all these AIs and all the rest of that, my friend Tom Blanton over at the National Security Archive basically plugged in portions of his testimony <laughs> to chat GPT. It didn't go well in, in terms of trying to find a solution to the problem. So I don't even know really that we're there with respect to AI yet. I think it's, I think it's possible. I think you could do it, but the criteria have to be narrow and they have to be consistent and it's got to be something that's, you know, relatively straightforward. And to me, that's achievable. You know, there are certain things that have to be protected, right? I mean, we're talking about current cryptologic systems, right, in use by our government or that are in use by foreign governments that are of foreign intelligence interest to the United States. Okay, we want to protect that. Current confidential human sources, especially those of a foreign variety, we want to make sure we protect those. Certain kinds of U.S. weapon systems and their components and all the rest of that. If it's current, but so much of this stuff is not current. So much of it is absolutely so old, it's unbelievable. And then we also have to remember that there is a fundamental public interest with even very, very contemporary things. And I'll just use the whole COVID pandemic debacle as an example. We put in FOIAs here uh, with, with HHS and multiple other agencies, not, almost now three years ago. And virtually every one of the dozen agencies, and I'm talking about as well, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I mean, it was a very, very kind of holistic approach that we took. 10 of those 12 agencies have never given us the time of day, right? And this is something that we asked for expedited processing on because this is happening in real time, you know, when we submitted it. And I take into account, you know, the impact that the pandemic had in terms of being able to get into an office and review documents. I totally get that. But once we had vaccines available, which we've had well available for some time now, and once we got the remote work part of this figured out, and I, I get it, you can't really do that with classified documents, but most of what we were looking for is FDA. Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, all the rest of it, that's not classified stuff, boys and girls. I mean, this should just be pretty easy to basically do at the end of the day, just still giving us the stiff arm. So that may be another suit that we wind up filing before this is said and done. And, and just to give us uh, a sense of the inmates running the asylum here, <laughs> uh, 
these same agencies or a lot of these, a lot of federal agencies um, that are, you know, intelligence agencies also don't really give members of Congress that much uh, in terms of their ability to review current and past uh, sensitive matters. Senator Ron Johnson really had some great props at this Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing because he was showing, and this is all unclassified, by the way, every bit of what he was talking about was completely unclassified. And the amount of redaction that the agencies were imposing on Congress in comparison to what other private FOIA requesters managed to get, you know, you could just see the veins in his head, you know, <laughs> just come, which is totally understandable. And I just, I just very gently and respectfully reminded him that the impeachment, uh, the impeachment mechanism in our constitution can be used against any civil officer of the government, not just the president, not just judges. You can reach down and grab the lowliest GS5 or GS12 or whatever and haul them out into the light of day through the impeachment process to highlight what they've been doing or not doing that they should have been doing. Um, he smiled when I said that, so I have some hope. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.